Tonight's Bible reading comes from Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 25. Um, You can find it on page 201 of the Pew Bibles. It's Judges chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren, childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, Drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honour you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat, together with the grain offering, and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that this was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtael.
Thank you, Hannah. Do have Judges open in front of you. We'll be looking through that chapter and also flicking through the next three. So we're going to cover kind of really most of the Samson story uh, tonight, but do have the Bible open in front of you. Before we get into it, I'm going to pray. So please do pray with me. Our loving God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is useful for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. And even in these strange, obscure stories in Judges, you have wonderful truths about you that we, are, that we can learn and wonderful ways that you're shaping us to be your people. We ask tonight that you work in us by your Holy Spirit. The things that I say will be pleasing and honouring to you and that you'll be working in all of our lives, whether we're here or across the screen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do anybody, any of you have in your house uh, something that you didn't know you needed, but then once you found it, it kind of changed everything for you? So something that you didn't know that, that was around, and then you found it, or like it was given to you, and I was like, wow, I definitely needed that in my life. Any of those? I've got a couple here. Some of these are found in the fourth drawer of your kitchen, right? Not, not the cutlery drawer, not the accessories drawer, drawer number four, right? Anyone have seen one of these? Couple, the cooks in their house, they know. This is an egg white separator. Put your egg in there, and the yolk's in there, but the egg whites come out the side, right? If you're into cooking, ideal. What about this one? Has anybody seen one of these? Has a little, it may be hard to see. It pops out the top. Bit, bit strange. Anyone seen one of those or know what it is? Anyone eat pickled onions? This is for the pickled onion lovers. If you have a pickled onion, you can't stab it with a fork in the jar. It goes everywhere. You need the pickled onion extractor. Get it in there. Get your pickled onion. You're good to go. What about this one? It's a little thing that goes backwards and forwards. It's a screw top. Anyone seen one of those? On the top, it says Fizz Keeper. For those of you, none of you have any idea, that's okay. For those of us who like to drink soft drink, but you don't drink the whole thing, after you're done, you put it in the fridge, it goes flat. Not if you use the Fizz Keeper. You put the Fizz Keeper on, you tighten it on the top, give it a few little pumps, and the Fizz is kept. It's amazing. True facts, right? Now, all these things are very strange, right? They're weird, they're a bit unexpected, and you would have no idea you needed them unless you suddenly want to do these things until you had them, right? You didn't know you needed it, it's unexpected, uh, but you got it and it changed something for you. Now, in a very kind of roundabout way, this is the story of Samson, the story that God tells through uh, whoever wrote this, the people of Israel, and through the life of Samson and the people. See, Samson is a type of savior that nobody asked for. He's the kind of saviour that is unexpected. He is strange. He does things kind of all the wrong ways. But he's the saviour that God is going to use to bring about his good purposes for Israel. God is going to step in uh, to save them. Now, Samson is a super long story in the book of Judges. It covers, as I said, chapters 13 through to 16. So we're going to cover it in two sermons. We're going to look through the whole narrative as a general rule twice. We're going to look at it through two different perspectives. The perspective we're going to look through tonight is looking at Samson from the outside. How is it that God uses him for God's good purposes in Israel? Uh, how he's going to bring about uh, deliverance in, in a way. 
we'll look mainly at chapters 13 and then 14 through to, to 16 in a, in a quicker kind of fashion. Then next week, we'll look at it through the other way. Well, the inside, what, what God is doing in and through Samson's character. Well, kind of all the wrong things, in a sense, we learn from Samson, but we'll look at Samson from the inside. Tonight, it's from the outside, looking at what God does in and through him. So here we are, chapter 13. Uh, as we had read before, it starts the same way all the judges' stories start. We know it's the, another judge. Now, this is actually the sixth, sixth and the final judge of the book. And so we're expecting something uh, down, declining, as what we've seen in the nature of the books so far. Down and down Israel uh, are going. But we read chapter, one, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, the same again, even the eyes of the Lord is there, but there's something a little bit different here. It's 40 years. This is a long time. This is a generation. Now, before this, the length of time has been eight years, then 18 years, 20 years, seven years, and 18 years. Now it's 40 years. This is kind of symbolizing the fact that this is real complete judgment, in a sense, on Israel, but also just how far they've gone. And the Philistines, we don't know a lot of detail about them there, but from history, archaeology, we know these are gruesome, powerful, super mighty empire at, at the day, very murderous and oppressive. That's the Philistines. We go on. A certain man of Zarah uh, named Manoah from the clan of the Danites. Danites, if you pick up them so far, they've been hopeless, rubbish. We, we learn about them in chapter 1, chapter 5, and they've not been in the good books. Dan, so it's not starting well. But Manoah has a wife who was childless and unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord, he's appeared a number of times, he comes again and he appears to her and says, you are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now to be childless and barren in any era of society is particularly uh, horrible. Uh, in, in any era, it is very uh, a hopeless kind of situation. Emotional despair is high. And that's definitely the case here, but even in a different way as well. Because they don't have social security, they don't have welfare, uh, they don't have these kind of things that the government does to look after them. Their social security, their welfare is their children. Right? As the children grow up, they provide, well, they work on the farms and all the things that they do there, but then when their parents die, the children look after them. So to not have a child means that you're hopeless. You don't have that security uh, coming before you. And this woman, in a sense, is symbolizing Israel, hopeless in their state. No capacity to produce life within themselves. But God has a plan, and he's going to bring uh, a son into the world through this barren woman. The angel continues from verse 4 and says, See to it that you drink no wine and no fermented drink, and you do not eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to the Lord. Hold on to that, Nazarite dedicated to the Lord from the womb. He will take the lead, or another translation says he will begin. He will begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. What's going on here is that God is going to deliver the people. That's no surprise. We've been seeing that again and again. We're a little bit surprised because man, God is going again. That is meant to shock us in some way. But he's still going to rescue his people. 
But this judge is very different from the others. He's different because he's not born yet. God is saying, I'm going to deliver you through a person who's not even born yet. I'm going to be the way that this guy is conceived. I'm going to open up this woman's womb. What is impossible is now going to become possible through God. He's going to work miracles to make sure this baby can come into the world to bring deliverance. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, there's all the echoes here or that we read about in the Mary interaction with um, the angel before Jesus is born. But we'll get to that uh, next time. The second difference is the judge is to be a Nazarite. Strange word. Uh, we wouldn't be familiar with it at all. We find it in uh, Numbers chapter 9. It's a vow that people make. The vow, we'll go into it uh, again next week where it will become important. But it basically means that this person is to be set aside, consecrated to the Lord for a particular time and a particular purpose. They look physically different and they act physically different to those around them. Uh, and they stand out to be consecrated to God. Right? It's Dad's Father's Day today. Right? Some of them do Movember. The Nazarite vow is Movember for life. Right? It is, you don't just get to finish. It is constant. The story goes on. And then we read uh, this whole chapter, which uh, Hannah had read to us before, about this interaction between the angel, Manoah, and the woman, the wife. Then we hear the story of Samson. Do you notice anything missing? Anything missing in this narrative? We're getting used to a cycle that goes on in the book of Judges, aren't we? They start in a period of rest, but then a new judge, judge comes. Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. They follow idolatry. Uh, and go against God, following the ways of the world. And then typically, well, they get oppressed. That's the next stage. We've seen those two things in Samson. But then they cry out, usually. They cry out to God. There is no crying out in this narrative. Israel does not cry out to God. Now, that is strange. Uh, that is very concerning. That They've been getting less and less authentic and genuine in their repentance and crying out, it seems, but now they don't even cry out at all. Now, there has two important things to say to us. The first one is, how good is our God? How amazing is our God? Even when they don't cry out, God is still going to come to them. And that says something about even our salvation. We cannot come to God. We do not find God. God finds us. If, you're, if we're part of the family of God, he has come to us, he has found us, and we have then responded in repentance and faith. And that's what's going on here. God is pursuing people that are his enemy. They're his people, but they're not following him. He's pursuing them uh, in his love. Now, the second thing to notice, though, is that this is a very concerning and dangerous spiritual state of Israel. Now, the Philistines are very oppressive, as I, as I was saying. Right? Super oppressive people. Israelites are not living in freedom they're not enjoying the blessings with God. Their relationship is in ruins. Why wouldn't they cry out? Why wouldn't they cry out to God in this situation? I think the answer is very concerning. Because it seems as though Israel is now content and living at peace with the Philistines. We see in the, the, the narrative that follows, they have kind of cordial relationships with them. There's uh, no kind of animosity that is experienced. They're living like the Philistines. They're becoming like Canaan. But they are blind to it. It's like they've become unconscious of their enslavement to them. 
And that asks the question of us, how might we become blind to the enslavement that we're in in the world? How might we become content or comfortable in our own sin or our own idolatry? Because it doesn't bother us anymore. We're not concerned about the way that we go and follow the ways of the world that are against God. They used to concern us, perhaps, but now they don't anymore. You can put up whatever comes to your mind in there, whether it's in your public life, your private life. You used to look more like Christ, but they're now like the world. Now, when I was a bit younger, I heard, I'm pretty sure it was in a sermon, uh, and the person said, if someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, that statement kind of really rocked me at the time. Um, The first answer to that question is it doesn't matter. Firstly, it doesn't matter. My relationship with Christ is not dependent on me. It's dependent on Christ, right? I'm not saved in his family because of good things I've done. When I'm before the Lord, I'm saved because I'm in Christ. That's our salvation. But when it comes to being a Christian, following in the way of God, I think it's a really helpful question to ask. If someone looked at your life, would they see that you're a Christian or not? Are we living the way of Christ, living out our faith? Are we ambassadors for Christ in every sphere of life, at home, in the workplace, in our social settings, wherever it may be? If we get comfy, if we get kind of apathetic and following in the ways of the world, we lose our distinctiveness. And as Tim McBride has said to us a number of times from here, and if you read his books and all these kind of things, he has the wonderful line that we are to be attractively different. Attractively different, but different. We are to be different from the people around us. And when we're not, it's bad for us, and it's bad for the world. So God is going to have to do something about that. God is going to have to do something about that for Israel. But before he does that, we get this long narrative. We get a long narrative about Manoah, his wife, and the angel. And it's really helpful because it teaches us about the nature of faith. Now, we had it read before, so I'll just summarize. Basically, what goes on, the woman hears uh, the announcement from the angel. The angel is with her. Then she goes and tells her husband. Now, the husband doesn't believe her or trust her or something. Father's Day advice, trust your wives. They're good people to listen to. Manoah, not on that page. Uh, He asks God, give me some more information. I want to hear it myself. Now, the angel comes back, but doesn't come back to Manoah. comes back to just the wife. Uh, I just love that how God is raising up this woman amongst, amongst what's going on here. But he's teaching Manoah something. See, Manoah, he wants to be in control. And more than wanting to be in control, he wants the details. It says, give me some more rules. What do I need to do? What do we need to do to make this kind of happen? Now, when the angel comes back, the angel just says, I already told your wife, and then tells him again. Gives him no new revelation. The angel graciously gives it, but there's nothing new. And then you get this interaction of verse 17. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So we we may honor you when your words come true. The angel replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. If you look in your footnotes, it might say wonderful. It is beyond comprehension. This angel of the Lord, who's the kind of a really perfect representation of God at this point, 
is saying this is who God is, perfect, wonderful, way beyond our comprehension and understanding. Now, why would the angel do that? Why would the angel come, give him the same, give him the same information, and then give him a cryptic name? The angel is giving him the help that he needed, but not in the form that he wanted. See, Manoah wants rules. He wants control. Uh, and he seems to want it so that then he can trust, then he can have faith. God's response is, I'll give you a revelation of myself. I'll show you who I am. I'll tell you who I am. I'm so much more higher, more powerful, more, more in control. And that revelation, you can now trust in me. That's all you need. Then you have the woman on the other hand. And she displays the kind of faith that we're able to emulate. Now, at the beginning, when uh, the angel came to her, she didn't question. She didn't ask for more detail. She has faith and she goes with it. And then when you have a look at the end of the story, uh, from verse 22 and on, the angel does a crazy thing, ascends in a fire, and Manoah's like, oh my goodness, we're doomed to die. Uh, He said this to his wife, we've seen the Lord. But the wife answered, very calmly it seems, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering and grain offering um, and all, all the things that he's told us. She can see what God is up to. She's responding in faith. Friends, we too, we can want all the details, the minute things, what do I do in this part of my life, that part of my life, how do I go about this and that, or whatever it may be. In this situation, God just gives him a revelation of himself. God says, this is who I am. You have my word and you have the spirit. And that is to be enough. Will you trust me or will you not? Now, of course, if you're coming to faith, there's questions, there's all sort of things that we definitely need to explore, for sure. But God says, you have my word and you have the spirit. You have my people. Will that be enough? I love how Tim Keller puts it when he talks about this phrase. And he says, God does not and will not give us a guidebook for every twist or turn, every doubt or decisions in our life. He gives us something so much better. He gives us himself. God gives us himself. And that is a beautiful thing that we can have definite faith in uh, and his word. We learn from that woman that faith is a humble acceptance or believing something which is unseen, maybe even completely illogical, unbelievable. But she bases her faith in the promises and the character of God. As the story goes on from here, we read that she calls him Samson. Samson means like of the sun. Sunny boy is who Samson is. And then for these next three chapters, if you've read it across this week, it is a bamboozling, it is strange, it is awkward um, kind of story. And we'll explore a lot of that kind of awkwardness and uh, trouble next, next week when we look at his inner character. But we want to explore what is God doing in the, char- in the person of Samson uh, throughout this narrative. And the really helpful way to do that is to see what the Spirit of the Lord is doing. Now, the Spirit of the Lord often comes upon a judge, and the judge goes and does something. In four occasions in the Samson narrative, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And we'll look at all four of them, and it'll tell us a lot about uh, what God is doing as he brings about deliverance for his people, for ones that didn't know it in a way that was unexpected. The first one was at the very end of what we read, chapter 13, verse 25. The boy is born, he grows, the Lord blesses him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he's in Dan. But then he goes down to Timnah. 
Timnah is Philistine territory. He's wandering off into the Philistine world. And in the Philistine world, he sees a young Philistine woman. He returns to his father and his mother and he says, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Get her for me as my wife. He sees, he desires, he takes. That is what Samson is about. He demands. Now, it is weird what is going on here. Why would God do that? Why would the Spirit of the Lord send him down there and then we have this strange occasion of Samson's unscented, uncontrolled desire for women? What is going on here? We read on. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him again. So now they're going back to get uh, this woman, have the, the wedding. And they come across a lion. Samson's by himself and uh, he's approaching uh, Timnah. A young lion comes roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon him and he tears the lion apart with his bare hands as one might have torn a young goat. I don't know if anybody's tearing at young goats. <laughs> Apparently that's what they do. But it's a demonstration of how powerful, how strong Samson is. As it goes on, there's scuts to another scene. The dead lion has been there for who knows how long. Bees have come, made a home in there, and they've turned the carcass into honeycomb and honey. Samson goes past, takes, sees, takes, eats the honey. What's God doing here? What's going on? Then we get the next section. It's the wedding feast. And in here we see Samson's cunningness and his greed. Now, this wedding, it goes on for seven days, basically a big booze fest with festivities and food, alcohol, all these kind of things. But he makes a bet. He makes a bet with uh, 30 Philistine men. And he says, I'm going to tell you a riddle. And if you can get it right, I'll give you 30 garments of clothing. But if you don't get it, you've got to give me 30 garments of clothing. Now, he thinks they got no chance of getting this. And they're like, ah, oh, Samson, you're a bit of a dopey bloke. We can definitely get it. So they take him up on the offer. And he gives him this riddle. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. He's very poetic, Mr. Samson. Now, the Philistines are going to rack their brain. Can't figure it out. And so then they go to the wife, or the wife-to-be. They blackmail her. They say, you better get it or we're going to burn you and your father's family. That's the Philistine way. And so the wife, she, she cries. She goes, to, please tell me you're keeping secrets from me. You must tell me what's going on. Um, please tell me, don't you love me? Um, nags him, goes after him for days. For seven days, the whole of the, the festival. Finally... Uh, she tells him. He tells her. And then she goes and tells the Philistines. They get the answer right. Now, this obviously makes Samson angry. What does he do? He goes out to get the clothes. But then this is where we find the Spirit of the Lord comes again the third time. Verse 19 of chapter 14. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. This is Samson. And he went down to Ashkelon, which is a Philistine territory struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who explained the riddle. And then burning with anger, he returns to his father's home, and Samson's wife is given uh, to someone else who attended the feast. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and it's an amazing feat, amazing feat of strength 
as he, as he uh, kills a random 30 Philistines. Now, this is the first interaction of perhaps defeating the Philistines, that kind of thing. But it's purely about Samson. He doesn't ever really care about what God is doing. But can you see the tension is beginning to rise? There's a tension that is rising between Samson and the Philistines. Now, the occasion is uncomfortable for us as we read it. And we ask, what is, what is the Spirit of the Lord doing here? And the story goes on. Later, Samson, we're now in chapter 15, he goes back to get his wife. What he finds is that they've given her to someone else. Now, this makes him more mad, right? He's like a man on roid rage. He gets super angry, and he does a weird thing. He gets foxes, he ties them together, puts a torch in them, sends them out into the fields, and they destroy all the crops of the Philistines. That obviously makes the Philistines mad. Samson's mad, the Philistines are mad, they want to go get him. So Samson is in Judah territory. Now, unlike Dan, Judah is like kind of the most upheld tribe so far in Judges. But they're doing no good here in Judges either. They're like, yeah, sure, man, you want to take Samson? We'll go help you. They go type Samson. Samson says, sure, yeah, you can let me uh, tie me up. And then they go give him to the Philistines. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson for a fourth time. We read this in chapter 15, verse 14. As he approached, the Philistines came toward him, shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes of his arms became like charred flax, the boundings dropped from his hands. Then finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. He kills them all and then kind of gets into a rap. He's like, with a donkey's head, I beat him like bread. With a donkey's head, a thousand wound up dead. And then he gets his jawbone, drops it, and like walks off into the distance, you know? <laughs> that's, that's Samson. What is the Spirit of the Lord doing there? I don't know. Who knows? No. It is a strange story. But again, the tension is rising. The tension is rising between the Samson and the Philistines. Then you get the story in chapter 16. At the end, Samson is captured. He's blinded. He's a slave. But he's now in the capital of Philistine. He's with the rulers and the kings. Now, if you know the story from there, uh, he asks the Lord to give him strength one more time. He pushes down the temple. Everybody dies. Now, he doesn't say anything about what God is doing. He just says, let me have revenge on the Philistines for taking out my eyes. And God grants him that request. We are left wondering, what on earth is God doing? Every single time the Spirit has come upon Samson, it seems... His action has not been Christ-like. His action has not been what we would consider godly, not the fruits of the Spirit. It is seemingly the opposite, seemingly sinful actions. Samson's lust draws him to marry the Philistine women. He gets greedy. He makes the bet. He kills the Philistines. He's in anger. He's in rage. He's destroying property. He's destroying people. Samson is a flawed, messed up, womanizing, impulsive, compromising, raging person. And I must admit, for most of this week, I've found that very concerning. 
I, di- I didn't really like that. I didn't understand what it is that God was doing. It seemed most unlike God for me. Now, obviously, there's bits in the New Testament where we walk in step with the Spirit and all those kind of things, which was rubbing against me. But I think it also revealed kind of one of my, perhaps, our underlying assumptions as we read the Bible, as we think about God. Because I, I was thinking, well, God can't use Samson because Samson's being sinful. But if that would be the case, I've put God in a box. And I've said God can't work unless someone is good. By extension, that means that God can't save unless someone is faithful, unless someone is doing good works. Now, that's not grace, is it? God always acts in grace that is central to his character, not based on what we do. And then that brings us back to a clue which I skipped over in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 4. This is at the beginning of Samson's life when he goes after the Philistine woman. It says in verse 4, His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. The parents don't know it. He doesn't know it. The Israelites don't know it. The Philistines certainly don't know it. But God is going to use this broken and ungodly character of a man, Samson, to create an occasion with the Philistines. Now, let me be super clear here that the Spirit is not making Samson sin. That's true throughout the Bible. And the Spirit is not making Samson sin. The Spirit of God is putting Samson in a situation then giving him the resources he needs, and then Samson's character is doing the rest. God is using Samson to create tension between the Philistines and himself. And he's representative of Israel in this way. Because remember, Israel are now comfy. They're comfy, seemingly content in their situation. God can't have that. So God, he wants to divorce the two. He wants to break them apart from their allegiance and their apathy with the world. The Israelites don't know it, but they're becoming more and more and more like Canaan, less and less like the people of God. And so God wants to pull them back, take them away from their allegiance to the world. Why? Because he loves them. Because that is what is good for them. That is what is ultimately going to be good for the world and because he promised so. So firstly, just see and behold how good our God is. That he loves us even when we don't ask. And that nothing and no one will prevent him from loving his people. Nothing is going to make his promises fail. He wants to bring the people back to himself, back to blessing, back to fullness of life. And what God does in the book of Judges, he does throughout the Bible, he continues to do in our life today. When his people are enslaved to the world, whether we know it or not, he desires and acts to bring us back to himself, to find forgiveness and to find life. Now, obviously, most powerfully, we see this in the person and the work of Jesus. He is the one who ultimately brings life. When we look at him through the Gospels, we see he's a man who brings truth, who brings healing, fullness of life. The one who shows the way to God, who is the way to God, uh, but also the one who dies on the cross, rises again. What gift of grace is Jesus, our Redeemer? But Jesus is obviously super concerned about our eternity, but he's just as concerned on what goes on in the present. Because Jesus is not just some ticket to heaven. He's concerned what's going on in the world now. 
and to draw out the kind of implication for us in the Samson story is it asks us in what ways might God be breaking us away from allegiance to the world? What ways is he breaking us away from our allegiance to the world and then back to allegiance to him? In what way might God in these moments in your life currently be rocking the boat in some way, bringing someone into your life or bringing something into your life, changing you, speaking to you by the voice of the Spirit, shaping the way that you view what's going on in the world, to see that if you're pursuing something worldly, that is not good, and to pursue something that leads to life, from allegiance to the world to allegiance to God. I remember when I was uh, 24, and my life in in some ways was going along swimmingly well. Uh, I had a great job working at at Littman, married, I put down a deposit on my house, serving here at church. It all seemed good from the outside, and there was lots of blessings that God, that I was experiencing for sure. But my allegiance and my affections were drifting. They were drifting away from God into the ways of thinking of the world. The ways that I was seeking security, comfort, and joy was not in things of God. And amongst a series of things that was happening, and I went on a mission trip to Indo, uh, and God convicted me that I was growing for a great love of the things of the world. But my allegiance was for worldly pursuits and that God and his glory, and the way that he transforms those worldly pursuits. I'd been blind. I'd been blind. But then God used that to reshape me, to change my purposes to be about God and his things. Now, I don't know how God is at work in your life. I just trust that God is. And I don't trust it because I think it's a good idea. I trust it because God's word says that he is. God loves his people dearly. So please continue to be receptive to the work of God in your life. Now, for some of us, God is knocking on our door, knocking on our door, saying, if anybody hears my voice, I will come in and eat with him. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, he's calling you back to himself. So I've come to bring you life, to have it to the full, to bring you forgiveness. He's asking you to be part of his family again, to repent, to be forgiven, to find life and life in Christ. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that are continuing to walk with him, God is in the business of making you more and more and more into the likeness of Christ, to be formed into his image. And when we're failing that or we're falling back into the ways of this world, in God's love and in his grace, he's going to change that. He's going to call us back to who he's making us to be, to help us to walk in step with the Spirit, to allegiance to God, back to his good purposes for the growth of his kingdom and the church and for our good, for now and for eternity. So we ask ourselves, will we be receptive to the work of God? He's a good God. He's good, he's gracious, he loves us. And we long to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us. Our loving God, we thank you you that you love us. We thank you that you're a God who is gracious. Uh, We thank you you're a God who never gives up on your people. So God, we pray that you continue to make us more into lights of Christ. We thank you for the ways that you're at work far beyond our understanding. And please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make it clear to us the ways you are shaping us more into lightness of Christ, divorcing us from ways of the world. For your glory, our good, and the good of this world. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.